My friends, what lays before you is the myriad knowledge of an unfathomable universe. Join our intrepid remembrancers as they explore the heresy as history. From deep within the farthest reaches of the great library of Tiska, we are the Heresy Grad School. So said the War Master in his wisdom. Go forth, my sons, and illuminate them. Well, welcome back, listeners, to another episode of Heresy Grad School, where we cover heresy as history. And uh, we've got a special guest on tonight. We've got uh, Will from the main cast who's going to hang out with us and talk a little bit about Black Shields and Iron Hands and all sorts of creepy stuff. But uh, I'm going to turn it over to Dave real quick to go over some housekeeping. Okay, thanks, Pat. So, hey, guys, this is Dave, and this is Lesson 6. This is the full lesson in our um, heresy grad schools and incursion uh, sort of study. And so we wanted to bring on somebody that is an expert in both Black Shields and Iron Hands. Uh, he is from our own community here in Richmond 30K. And I would like to let him introduce himself. So Will, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your background, specifically um, with Black Shields and Iron Hands. So, um, hi everybody. You know me from the main cast. If you listened to that a couple times, um, my experience with Black Shields and Iron Hands, uh, I've been fascinated with Iron Hands since I first saw Horse Heresy. Uh, I started them up, uh, and they were my first army when, back when, like, Forge World had the, um, Iron Hands army starter set, which came with, uh, the, the special, tactical marines and the iron father um and i've been a huge fan ever since then um progressed through the storyline black shields came out wasn't really interested in them and then i read riven and um what was the uh, what's the follow-up to that the keys to hell or keys the keys to hell or keys of hell was that it can't remember yeah so yeah john french uh wrote keys to hell and then riven was the sequel both short story novellas was Riven the sequel? I'm pretty sure Riven was the first one, where the uh, Iron Hand is kept under lock and key in Terra, and then he's escorted out with the um, Imperial Fist dude. And uh, I think that's when we first meet them, is in Riven. Um, but I think okay. Keys to Hell is when they're when it goes in depth, uh, and it follows that Iron Hand uh, as he's now one of these Riven. Anyways, that's, whichever the order right. is, um, I read that and I was like. Oh man, I feel like the Riven are an amazing aspect of the Iron Hands that don't get a lot of play or interest or not many people really even know about. So I built a Black Shields force based off the uh, the Riven. Uh, so, you know, I used uh, the special rule that made them slower but tougher. I gave them all like drop assault vehicles to represent um, how, how the Riven uh, use drop assault primarily, like drop pods and that kind of stuff. Um, and it was a really fun list. Um, however, with only that list being, compl or, you know, with only having those two stories to base an entire army off of, there wasn't much fun with it, uh, I guess, thematically. 
So I went back to regular Iron Hands, and I've been with regular Iron Hands ever since. Well, I take that back. I did Shattered Legions for a while. That was fun while it lasted, but I'm back to pure Iron Hands and, you know, loving it ever since. So um, I really enjoy uh, the Iron Hands post-Istavan. Uh, Pre-Istavan, they were super mean, super cool, uh, but Ferris set them up for failure. Uh, having them their their hierarchy be you know just one guy with all the answers that's a single point of failure and if these guys were so into the machine cult you'd think they would have thought of redundancies like the mechanicum does but i guess not uh because they had no redundant leadership um everything was invested in affairs so when he died the legion was completely shattered and then along comes shadrach uh who falls right back into that same pit and being the single point of failure for the shattered legion um so you know it kind of sucks uh i hate iron fathers you know there's that if you've ever read old earth you'll understand why um but the iron hands are a very um they're cool but they're really shitty like they they don't learn from their mistakes is what is what uh, you come to find out by the end of it now that said we have uh, short stories and Siege of Terror and that kind of stuff coming. So maybe we'll see them actually learn from their mistakes and uh, start to do things differently. But they fall for traps all the time. They don't communicate well. They're really fucking stubborn and stupid a lot of the time. But I still love them because of their brutality. They are the baddest good guys out there. I mean, I'm sh I don't know if you guys have already covered this, Dave, but Autech more threw a moon at a planet because he fucking could, you know. So they're pretty off the rails for good guys, but you know, Hey, that's what I like about them. Will, you don't remember our very first heresy grad school. Oh my God. That, I was actually in that one. That's how long ago it was. I do remember it now that we talked yeah. about it. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. So yeah. I'll take more. And, uh, I think I'll take more. has become my, my new favorite after old earth. He does make a cameo in that. And, uh, he pretty much just does his part and then leaves like you should. Like conducting any raid, you need to hit your objective and then be out of there quick. And that's exactly what Autech Mort does. Meanwhile, the rest of the loyalist Shattered Legions are off doofing around and you know get caught up in more stuff. Uh, so Autech Mort, while Ferris hated him, I think he hated him because he knew that he was a much better uh, leader than him. I'll say it right now. Yeah, I think Autech Mort was probably a better leader than Ferris Manus. The Xana incursion. Death has reared himself a throne in a strange city lying alone. Hell, rising from a thousand thrones, shall do it reverence. Unknown poetic fragments collected in the Lexus Dramaturica, Saga M2. Part 6 The Logic of Survival to Conclusion. I don't think you'll get much argument from our listeners, or or maybe or maybe you will. But if you uh, if you guys agree with Will, let us know. If not, um, uh, I certainly don't. But uh, I don't disagree. That is, and and so I think this is the perfect segue into into where we are now because the trap has been thrown, and Zana is waking up to the full realization the massive predicament that then right so they've been trapped their fleet has been trapped uh in a void war that's too far away for them to disengage from um 
you know, for without taking massive casualties, even though they're trying. Uh, we've got a Dark Angels relic of old night ship that's just going rogue within the atmosphere of uh, of Xana One within the debris belt, just just you know causing mayhem in their uh, their supply f- fleet that they sort of were withholding, and we have a full on uh, surprise incursion going on in Xana Tissaphone. Which is the for, which is the uh, penal colony legion slash experimental research facility moon uh, that's in orbit of Xana two, right? Xana one being the gas giant, Xana two being the planet, and then Xana Tissaphone being the orbital research station slash penal colony. So that brings you guys up to speed on where we are. Um, shit's about to get real, right? Like not that it already isn't, but it's about to get really real on the surface and subsurface of Xana 2. Um, so we've, we've not seen action there yet, but, but we're about to, and, uh, this is going to blow the socks off a lot of guys, a lot of listeners. Um, it certainly blew the socks off of me uh, as I read through this and it's, it's sort of when I reached out to Will and I said, dude. Are you are you tracking any of this? Because the, because this yeah. is a this is a trick that uh, the I don't think a lot of people knew the Iron Hands had, and I think this is one thing that they probably should have utilized more. Honestly, yeah, and 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 you know we don't really know. Um, we only know anecdotally a couple stories with um, you know Riven, and then a couple other stories, but. The Iron Hands, I think, will. I don't know if you would disagree with me on this, but I think the Iron Hands sort of ceased to exist post Istvan Five. Um, that they really, their story in the rest of the Horus Heresy is as Black Shields um, or Shadow Legion. Uh, that that their chap, their their sort of their legion is sort of non-existent as they fight back through the massacre at Istvan. To the uh, season. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, that I mean, is they're a guerrilla legion, right? They are now. Um, and uh, that is actually a common argument that is brought up c- consistently throughout the Shattered Legion is that, you know, we, we're not ourselves anymore and we need to get back to Medusa and reforge the legion. Uh, but they can't. They're in the middle of a war. They don't have time to stop and breathe. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, I think we write the Iron Hands off in the Horus Heresy after Istvan V. We sort of say, ah, they sort of made their contribution in Istvan V. Sort of write them off, but um, actually, no. They made a huge impact. Just didn't just know that it was the Iron Hands. It was sort of these disparate groups, these guerrilla forces, these black shields, you know, just fighting their way back and then just sometimes not even fighting their way back but just um you know taking you know taking heads where they could take heads yeah absolutely that's exactly what the war came down to for them at the end until the very end you know what i mean until they they had that last straw and then uh it finally just all collapsed yeah definitely but uh, but yeah, so you guys, we're we're in for a little bit of a treat here. This is a very special lore segment. Um, I think you're going to see some things 
um, in the lore here that you have not seen anywhere else unless you've you've stumbled upon uh, either the Riven or the Keys of Hell. Um, but very few other places have I seen sort of what we're about to talk about covered. So, um, Pat, Jason, with that, you guys want to get into it? Yeah, absolutely. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we're talking logic of survival, starting out on page 70. So, a couple of things here, uh, starting out. You guys remember last time what was going on um, for the Xanites? Nothing good. Uh, they have just found out quite violently that uh, these Sons of Horus are not real Sons of Horus, and they're causing a lot of problems. There are a whole bunch of uh, enemy tech marines all up on their Ordnatus engines. There are a whole bunch of uh, enemy warships circling uh, circling Zana 1. So uh, nothing good is going on for them right now. So uh, this information, as with all you know, Mechanicum Forge chains, is networked back eventually to the ruling Majos, to the Vodian Consistory. And they are essentially, you know, panic blurting Wi-Fi data back and forth, uh, trying to figure out what the calculations tell them to do. This is essentially a catastrophe unfolding in real time for them. And they've been pretty much blindsided on multiple fronts and led into traps. Uh, a void battle that they thought was handily theirs has now evolved to... Uh, have been a pretty terrible decision on their part because while the Amphion and its attendant fleet of capital ships may not be faring so hot, uh, it gave them the perfect opening to draw away the rest of the Dark Mechanicum's fleet. So now paranoia is starting to take over the consistory. Uh, they are assuming that there is a massive attacking force on their way to besiege the Ford world. So the Vodian consistory dispatch override signals to drop absolutely everything, regardless of engagement, and return to Zana 2 and to kill the uh, quote-unquote Sons of Horus, the um, Cicatrix Tyrannus, uh, orbiting around the moon of Zana 2. So it's calculated, of course, withdrawing full scale from an engagement uh, with the Amphion and its fleet is going to be costly, but this sort of survival instinct has completely overridden everything else. And they essentially just abandon the munitions fleet that's just hanging out around, um, and, you know, half of it's on fire already. So on Zana 2, everything, weapons, scanner arrays, defensive networks, void shields are realigned for orbital attack. Everything's on high alert. Uh, automated rail trains are flying back and forth, uh, pushing tolerances to rearm all of the planet's missile silos um, and stockpiles beneath the oceans. And all the time that Zana is mobilizing itself to try and realign and target this attack they know is coming from the orbit of Zana 2, uh, it's actually coming from someplace much closer. Mm. 
Yeah, I, I love Jason that um like Xana and the Forge um forges and the and the Magos are finally waking this and they're like um they're like, oh my God, how did this happen? We didn't see this coming. How could this be? You know, we have all this information and all this knowledge. And I was reading at the same time I was um, sort of reading this, I was listening to um, a, a novel by Gav Thorpe, which is Imperator Wrath of the Omnisai, which is really, really good. And it features this um, Magos Exasis, which is a, a leader on board an Imperator Titan. So he's he's in charge of the tech guard on board of a, an Imperator. And so this Magos is processing all this data coming in, right? And it's sort of, it's got these massive algorithms and it's weighting them. And if you've done any type of algorithm work, right, you know, you have to weight the different variables, right? So that they end up contributing more to the final sort of analysis. And, and you can see that um, for the the Magos on Xana, the the near impossibility of all of these disparate events being coordinated, you could see that that would be like a zero possibility outcome, right? That they would weight it as like, no, this couldn't possibly be a plan by the loyalists to, you know, deceive us on so many different levels. Like, no. Nobody could do that, and so they sort of they sort of write it off in their in their logic engine, um, create this this is zero possibility outcome. And I thought that was just very, really cool that even the sophistication of a forge world um, can be overcome by a just total daring balls out uh, suicidal incursion, right? Like. Like none of these guys thought they were coming back, um, but it it worked and it was um, it was super badass. So I think that that gives it some credence. I think it gives it some possibility that you can have a force that's small in scale that's got layered sort of complexity and is able to overcome all of the defensive mechanisms and protocols of uh, a major forge world. So, yeah, man. Um, and then also, uh, this is why Forge Worlds build all their shit underground because <laughs> they make mistakes. And when they make mistakes, things go really wrong. Uh, it usually goes wrong on the surface of their. And then, you know, they have stuff underground. So they're like basically you know, giant doomsday preppers, I guess could say that is a pretty entertaining visual just like stockpiling robots and automata for when stuff like this goes down i mean they don't need toilet paper so uh, sorry too soon too soon too soon pat <laughs> oh goodness all right but so. with the the threat that comes i mean how could have they even predicted it right I think that's part of what makes this kind of a cool story, even if it is, like, yet another poor, like, Trader Forge role getting kind of shit on. It's neat to see, like, even with this tiny force. I mean, because if Hard come at this head on, like, I mean, I love Altec more to death, but uh, your boy's not subtle. Uh, 
it would not have been an engagement anywhere near something like this. And I think it's a cool kind of, you know, shift and from a world leader, no less. Oh yeah, totally wildcard. Like if wildcard had a face in 30 K, it would be hard for sure. Oh yeah. But we talked about this, I think a, a couple episodes and probably we've talked about it through the series is, um, the, the f- sort of the fit of this was the punitive force that was sent from the Segmentum Solar, right? Dorn labeled Xana as Traitorous Perdita in 007 M31. We're in 009. So for two years, Xana, Xana has known that they're on the bad list, right? They're, they're, they're blackballed, right? So they're blacklisted. So so that when the Segmentum Solar fleet shows up, right, uh, with the Amphion, which is a Gloriana class um, battleship um, battle barge from the Segmentum Solar with the company, that's an obvious play. Like Xana knew that, okay, all right, so retribution come. Here's Dorn's, you know, he's Dorn's making good on his promise, which Dorn. Does he does right? He's he's a man of his word. He Dorn deception does not deception and Dorn do not ever the same sort of hemisphere. Um. So, so that when that that uh, fleet shows up, they just send everything at it. Right? Macro defenses, um, orbital defenses, their entire fleet. But it's a fucking lure, man. Uh, because then the trap is sprung, and it's sprung on so many different levels. And and Jason and Pat and I have been talking about this, is that in order to really break a Forge world, and we saw this in um, Paramar, uh, we saw this on Zhao Arkad, in order to break a Forge world, you have to get forces on the ground. You've got to get forces, boots on the ground, and you've got to break their command and control nodes. And you can't do that from Orbital. So this really was a lure to bring Xana's um, considerable forces uh, out into the void and then allow for this in, you know, very limited uh, insertion force to come down. Uh, but then uh, we're about to see how they exponentially force multiply while they're down there. That's it's it's pretty cool. All right, with that, let's check out Vengeance of the Fallen. So, uh, we're looking at the orbital transfer ports of the greatest of Zanus Forge fanes. We're talking Tefra, Escorial, and Setna. So, if you'll remember from last time, the War Master, allegedly the War Master, uh, sent these huge crates of uh, cargo containers um, ranging in junk from like small STC patterns to things um, uh, like uh, dead Astartes equipment, uh, like just different war material and salvage that had been sifted from Istvan 5. And so, of course, everything going through has been scanned by auspices, and these things, no sign of life, no active power sources within them. Uh, 
Mechanicum being Mechanicum, of course, don't stop there. Uh, they ping them with echo scans and different resonance readings. And all of these indicate exactly what has been promised. They were uh, junked machines, dead Astartes, and I can only assume what is a terrible state of decomposition. Um, all of this stuck together. Not a single container has yet been you know, opened. Uh, because <laughs> what happens next is kind of like this little bit of contention uh, from, you know, the Horus Heresy is all about the unreliable narrator, but uh, this is allegedly only captured from fragments of ancillary data, scattered pics and vox recordings, uh, different data seized from enemy archives, and of course, like good old-fashioned hearsay, which is 90% of some of these accounts. Uh, but the, I love the last line of the first paragraph in Vengeance of the Fallen. But by all available evidence, the dead walked on Zana too. So it says, almost as one, the cargo containers broken and blasted open from within, ceramite-clad fists smashing through to grasp the air as if called forth by some unheard summons. Dark-armored figures came forth in grim and silent advance, bearing the livery of fallen loyalists of the Raven Guard and Salamanders, even the Imperial Fists and White Scars, but most bore the scorched and rent livery of the Iron Hands of Clan Companies slaughtered wholesale on the Black Sands of Istvan V, and more sinisterly, also of Clan Companies that had fallen long before, during the darkest days of the Great Crusade. Of this army of the dead, there was no leader to be discerned, no command signals or command vox transmissions were recorded, only an oscillating electrospectral field of unknown origin which seemed to pulse relentlessly from the tomb containers from which they came. With them followed scores of dreadnoughts from the larger cargo units, their shells as damaged and abused as the armor and bodies alongside which they walked, but they were no less functional for it, and behind them rumbled forth half-wrecked tanks and rapier weapons platforms, humming with power and the rattle of loading shells. Those nearby automata and tech thralls that met the sudden onslaught were overwhelmed in moments, and the silent army quickly fanned out, ramshackle and here and there stumbling on broken limbs and reeling as it went, but still with deadly speed and murderous purpose. Soon alarms sounded, and the defenders of Zana, their unceasing vigilance set skyward, turned to make swift counterattack to the invaders in their midst, and found themselves facing a foe of singular suicidal ferocity. Guys, if that doesn't sh send shivers up your spine, I mean, I don't know what else in the lore of the Horus Heresy is going to do. Because, I mean, that to me is, that is the revenge of Ferris Manus. Oh, it's creepy as hell. <sighs> Well, I mean, you you you've been studying Iron Hands and Black Shields for a long time. You've you've based armies on this. I mean, I think a lot of listeners are not really familiar with all of the the depth here. But can you give them a like some background here? Like, what what was Ferris Manus up to? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Ferris Manus, uh, as we all know, was a very brilliant mind, um, and 
along the way, uh, technology was discovered uh, that was to be classified by he himself to be too, I guess, uh, powerful or about it, it just went against everything that he stood for. Um, and he created a vault called the keys to hell, uh, where he locked everything away, uh, of this technology. And there's, there's not really, we're not sure how many keys there are. Um, but each of these keys is some form of technomancy that is allowed to use technology to bring the dead back to life. And it's not just dead organisms. It's dead, uh, machine spirits uh dead engines it's it's a lot of wacky crazy stuff out there that's never actually fully explained except that it was so terrible for its potential power that ferris himself locked it away rather than use it to make his legion stronger yeah i mean it i mean it it borders on the techno harris i mean Oh, ab- yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it most certainly does. Um, some other examples of this that maybe Ferris himself didn't discover, I think a lot of the stuff stems from Old Knight. For example, we have um, the Iron Heart, which is used by a couple of Iron Hands on... Uh, Jason, do you remember that ship name? Or Dave, do you remember that ship name from uh, the Seventh Serpent? Yeah, no, I totally remember it. Oh, man, I'm blanking out now. But that detachment of Iron Hands, their ship captain is gravely wounded, so they attach this Iron Heart to him uh, that at a point starts threading cables throughout his body, uh, looking as if it's draining his life force, and yet he's becoming more animated and lifelike while losing his life force. Um, So the apothecary can't make sense of it or heads or tails, so he just cryogenically freezes him until he can come up with an answer, which he never does. Uh, but there's, there's a lot of this old school sort of, I, I'm, I keep using technomancy because it's necromancy with technology, uh, that we do see played out in the heresy. And yeah, I mean, definitely would be considered, um, tech heresy in, in the current 30 K and even 40, 40 K. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's another reason why Ferris locked it away was because he knew it was just, it's not what technology should be. Technology should yeah. not be used to to bring the dead back, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. But, you know... Which is weird because he, he did keep the immortals, which while technically that's not um, technomancy, I mean, he was prolonging those dudes' life using augmentations and cybernetics and that kind of stuff. But I guess at, at a certain point... I don't know where his gray area was where like if the dude was dead for X amount of seconds, we could bring him back as an immortal or put him in a sarcophagus. But if he was dead for, you know, X plus, then we cannot use the keys of hell to bring him back. I don't know where like his lines lied in that. Nobody does. I don't think. With regards to the immortals. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm cause you know, immortals are, they are very badly, beaten to the point of should being in contemptors. You know what I mean? Most of them anyways. Right. Right. Yeah. Iron hands. Definitely. They, um, they get as close to that sort of gray area as, as, as any of the legions do. Um, but yeah, this is really, uh, this is really interesting from a number of different, I think perspectives for me anyway. And that is that post Istvan, post Istvan five, 
the loyalists are on such such a back foot uh, that that they've been so basically compromised um, by the traitors and th- the treachery on Istvan that they have to fight this uh, war of of it's not attrition anymore. It's it's they've got to fight a war where they can continually inflict more losses on the traitors than they themselves incur. And this, this is how, to me, they are able to do that. Um, Yes. Agreed. Yeah. 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 And I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to fight a war of attrition when every time you kill a guy, they can bring him back. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And, and I mean, and we know Riven, um, or, or the keys of hell, but we know from John French that you can't do this indefinitely that the the resurrection protocol does degrade over time. Yes, um, they they lose personality and that kind of stuff. They have personality for a short time before their brain just can't remember anything other than hate and anger somehow. It can remember emotions. They they seem to be more emotionally driven and logically driven uh from you know what we've read so far uh including this revenge of the fallen uh segment and uh riven um, they'll never use traitor marines. Uh, I've noticed they always will use loyalist marines that were killed by traitors. And I think it is, I think keys to hell must play some form of emotional control rather than logic control in that sense. Right? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree because I think they're, they're basically this on, on this Zana two incursion. Um, and we'll see this a little bit later on, but, uh, they're basically they're activated, right? The the drop the drop containers come down. They're given the signal. They're sort of reanimated, and there's there's no there's no mechanism to get them back, right? This is no, a, there's this, no recovery yeah. program for this. Now yeah. you know there was that one forge father who did have recovery programs in place uh, to recover the the corpses of his guys, but I don't think. Uh, uh, our guy Har had any plans of recovering people, and I think that's what made this attack so effective. Was this was a suicide force? Well, f- first off, let's because they do mention that it's a suicide force. I don't know how it can be a suicide force when they're already dead. So, <laughs> yeah. but uh, it's definitely a force that doesn't care if it dies. Again, you know what I mean. So it's able to fight harder and more relentlessly in that sense. But yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, yeah. you know, I I think some listeners are going to probably point out like, well, how is it that Har got access to the keys of hell? Um, and I think we can address that later. Or have you guys already discussed the sigilite? Oh, the sigilite hand has been in this from from the very beginning. I mean, had right. to have been because, um, and actually, Will, this is a point that I haven't explicitly made, but um, on I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to pull our listeners back just for one second, right? Because this is something that's actually really interesting. You just made me think about this. Um, on page 66, Fragments and Suppositions, uh, we have some sort of anecdotal evidence that the primary source file for this operation was held within the seal and office of the Sigilite and the Divisio Sicarii. So, so we've never heard of the Divisio Sicarii before. Well, I think that's because it was destroyed at uh, the Siege of Terror, wasn't it? 
It was. It was. All records and whatever this Divisio was were destroyed at the Siege of Terra. Um, but very clearly, the Sigilite's hand was in this from the very beginning. Yeah. Now, people were, you know, again, people may point out, well, then how did... Uh, is it possible? I, I personally feel that it's possible that the Sigilite knew about the keys to hell. Uh, I don't think Ferris was great at keeping secrets, considering his entire legion knew about the keys to hell. Um, and he must have had access to them to find them or explain them and get them to uh, Har somehow. That, that's the only thing I can think of of how he was able to do this. But what's really baffling to me is how was he able to get the legionnaires from the crusade era? That's one thing, like, I, which makes me think that I believe the Sigilite may have just been stockpiling dead dudes. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how they were able to recover all these dead dudes. That's something I would like to dive deep, but I don't think there's any evidence or, or explanation to how they were able to get all of them. That's a great point. No, that's that's absolutely so. So when Endred Horror's um, sort of expedition came back into uh, sort of imperial space. Somebody made contact with him, um, or he he found some imperial agent to make contact with. Right, this is to me. This is where the agents of the War Master and the agents of the Emperor really do become palpable forces that you can play with in the game, which is very real, right? Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that's a great point. Is is this this war reserve, this war stock? that was going to be given as tribute by the sons of Horus to the, the forge masters of Xana, like the dead of Istvan, the dead of, of many battlefields. Like, yeah, where'd they get that shit? And why were they just stockpiling it in cryostasis? I mean, yeah, they're, they're, yeah. I'm just, there's gotta be more nefarious reasons why somebody had reasons to keep, corpses pre-crusade or during the even the crusade that's what gets me man is that part about the crusade like why was that even something you were wanting to do why not give those dudes honorable burials uh somehow they're still in cryo sleep what was the plan was the plan maybe that ferris was gonna reincarnate his dudes at one point if it ever came down to it maybe if he hadn't died at istavon i mean this is all conjecture now and like what if you know but I don't know, maybe if he hadn't died at Istvan 5 and if he ever needed him, he was going to open the keys of hell himself and reactivate all his dead warriors again. Who knows, man? Was this a contingency plan, right? Yeah, was this, yeah, yeah. who knows? I mean, we're, really, it's it, it's a, a rabbit hole that could go down deep for a long time. And unfortunately, I don't think we'll we'll find the answer anytime soon. You know, I don't think so either until either one of the Black Library authors, <clears throat> you know, John French, uh, or, you know, somebody else uh, gives us a little bit more to chew on. But but I think I think it's safe to say, Will, I think it's safe to say the Iron Hands were directly involved in this. They had to be. Had Yeah, I, be I believe to get it as well executed as it was in some form, he had to contact one of them. But but that's the thing. I mean, I. I believe that's probably the most reasonable explanation is he found a iron father who knew about the keys to hell and was able to help him with this. But then the other option is maybe the sigilite gave it to him. Maybe he found this and they were already ready to go. I, we don't know. Yeah, we, we definitely don't know. I will say that before we, we, uh, we to, uh, the topic at hand, I just want to 
turn our listeners' uh, attention, since this is what we do, to uh, to page 75. And I'm not going to expound on this at all, but Svarg171, read that and have your minds blown because I think this will give you some context and clarity on on what Will and I and and Jason and Pat have been talking about. So we're not talking about reanimating Legionnaire. Uh, We're talking about reanimating anything with a cortex. Yeah, and like I said, even machine spirits, they were able to bring yeah. back. So this is this is like technology. I, I wouldn't even know how to describe it. Like, what is? It, did it stop? Or it's like the WD forty and duct tape of thirty k is what it is, right? Well, but I mean, like, compare it to say uh, the Mechanicum rules that that I that I mostly play with, with thralls, which is revenant alchemy, which is essentially like they're just, they just ignore all pain. And the fact that like the Mechanicum Lacrimatus have the ability to just reanimate thralls at a whim. Yeah. So maybe, maybe there's, maybe there's a little too much dark kind of, necromancy fleshy nonsense going on between the iron hands and and uh the mechanicum that is before the crusade you know it's quite possible man there there's a lot of rabbit holes to go down but yeah listeners the uh castle x stage describing pretty impressive pretty impressive monster i would love to see a revenant legion just painted up like this, right? Like if you guys want to do it, you want to, <laughs> I'll do it. Fine. All right. Well, there you go. Listeners didn't even think it would be that hard, but, um, or that easy, but yeah. So no, that, I mean, amazing, right? Just there's a lot oh, of, yeah. uh, a lot of, a lot of rust effects in there. And, uh, shit, guys, well, we don't want to twist your arm right <laughs> Yeah. All right. You, you guys convinced <laughs> I gave it. You're so manipulative. I don't know how you did it. I started this whole podcast just for that one moment. Um, yeah. yeah. No, no, that's awesome. Uh, and seriously, guys, if, if I think if you've played Black Shields at all, um, I think the rules that Black Shields have really do lend themselves to um, playing around with different, you know, sort of schemes like this. Um, and that's, I think that's where they get the tough, the plus toughness, right? It was never about gene bulking them up to, you know, some crazy level, right? They and weren't, yeah. Using, even if yeah. they call it gene bulked, it could always be used to represent something like this, which is what I used it for. You know, I, I mean, it, it just, as soon as I read that rule, it just, reflected perfectly as to what was described in the books uh they're very slow but they're soup they take multiple bolter shots and don't go down they they explode themselves with frag grenades and they keep walking but the longer they're out of cryo sleep the slower they become they're you know they're better best served cold i guess oh shit are they an analogy <laughs> for revenge because like they they murder best cold or, or something i don't know there's got there's something there we can dig it out later Absolutely. Yeah, that, I, I would have 
preferred that role to have been revenant that would have been a much way better. better yeah yeah totally but um but yeah all right guys we're gonna uh we're gonna continue on with this fucking bombshell uh of a, a lore segment here and uh we'll turn it back over to jason here to uh finish got it they're a good analogy for revenge or possibly ice cream Oh, better cold. Yeah, you gotta you gotta get it while it's cold. If it melts, it's yeah. just a mess. Doesn't work anymore. Right. It just it gets everywhere. It's nobody wants that soupy nonsense. So let's talk about what these uh, crazy tech zombies are uh, running into. So the first thing they hit are the poor sad sack ad secularis. Whenever the Mechanicum get into a bad engagement, these are the first guys to catch it. And they're barracked near the uh, cargo containers, the uh, you know, star ports there. And the Revenant Astartes tear through these Ad Secularis like they aren't even there. Uh, it's described specifically, uh, let's see, their bodies are broken by unwavering volleys of bolter fire or simply ripped apart in hand-to-hand, too one-sided to deserve the name. So they start to bring up Castellax, which are, of course, a little heavier, uh, a little more solid. But the problems they're running into here are the Astartes, which normally go down like wheat to uh, Mauler bolt cannons. Uh, even bodies that are, you know, have limbs torn off or cut in half uh, by Mauler cannon fire are still dragging themselves on to attack. And tanks that should basically be inoperable um, by damage are still pushing forward as burning wrecks and their weapons are still firing even as their munition stores are cooking off and detonating. So the Xanite automata are causing damage, but they're so overwhelmed, uh, on top of which they're being you know, set on fire with Phosphex and hit with Rad missiles uh, before the uh, stumbling Revenant Dreadnoughts uh, finally hit them and just pull them apart. And it's very obvious to the Xanite Mechanicum at this point. Uh, the Vengeful Fallen are not really making any attempts to hold objectives. They're not trying to consolidate and form a battle line. They're just killing everything they run into until they are pulled apart down to the part, uh, down to the occurrence that they are just completely inoperable. So even as the Vodian Consistory are trying to figure out and readjust this new assault, uh, the breakout is just underway and they cannot contain these uh, revenants as fast, uh, ironically, as fast as they're going. So they are very slow, but completely inexorable, and they're starting to spread through the upper reaches of some of the forge veins, and they're just running over top of whatever, you know, tech savants, soldiers, automata whatever they're hitting um everything is just being killed they're leaving fires and just random phosphex uh seeping through ventilation ducts is just i mean of course phosphex real quick is the is a tech savant somebody who's just like real smart it whiz guy can you just imagine being at your office and getting punched by a dead man like that good lord right they just kick in the wall to your cubicle and like tear your computer out of the wall that would that'd be pretty terrible not gonna lie 
but basically uh, Phosphex has gotten into everything by now because, I mean, these revenants don't care if they get hit with Phosphex. Uh, so after 15 solid hours of the opening hostilities uh, where the Amphian dropped into you know, space around Zana, uh, the original Zanite warfleet is now you know, streaking back towards Zana too. Uh, they only have maybe a third of its original strength because not only was the fight with the Amphion and its attendant warships god-awful, but it was super costly to disengage. Uh, fortunately for them, the Amphion does not choose to pursue. They instead disengage themselves, and they are slowly trying to pull their you know, arms fleet back together. Uh, Two-thirds of the macro transports have either been destroyed outright or sent burning into the gravity well of the gas giant. Uh, not great there. Uh, the Dark Sovereign does as the Dark Angels do and are just, you know, slowly slip out the back door where everybody else is, you know, exploding and catching fire. Uh, they steal the Droman M571 and uh, slowly, you know, take it out the back when nobody's looking. Um, of the three Forge Fanes that Zana has, you know, come under assault here. Uh, Setna is the only one of them to basically get through it intact. Uh, what happens here, uh, the invaders haven't gotten too far into some of the subsurface, you know, facilities we were talking about before they run into a very large contingent of Mechanicum Knights of House Malinax. Now, these guys are hardcore veterans, and there are a solid score of them, of the rarer Mechanicum Pattern Knights. And even so, uh, even though that they are wiped out uh, to a, I don't know, man, quote-unquote, uh, the Revenant Astartes managed to bring down more than half of the 20 Mechanicum Pattern Knights that are facing them. Uh, the other two Forge Fanes do not fare well at all. Uh, Tefra has a real big problem as Zombie Astartes basically fling themselves into the reactor until they breach it and detonate it. Uh, basically just, you know, vaporizing several square kilometers of the heart of the Forge Fane and turn it into radioactive slurry. Uh, the third Forge Fane, Escorial, was not quite as god-awful, but it was far more diffuse than that of Tefra. Uh, basically, the Revenant just got into everything, and it was across a huge front. They're just getting into everything and causing problems. Those so, nasty Revenant, just like a messy cat, you know? They just right? they're like they're like bad bugs, is what they are. They get in. They're there, just batnet power cables, and it's just <laughs> it's awful. So, back on Zana Tisiphone, uh, things have not gone well either. Uh, Giant Prison Forge has, you know, basically gotten rolled over by Indrid Har and the firepower of one of the captured Ordinatus. Uh, at the same time, the prisoners feel like this is a terrific time to revolt, uh, which basically just causes a whole bunch of chaos and anarchy, which allows Har to, you know, further just ransack the weapons testing facilities there before um, 
What's kind of interesting here, the one time that the Zonite Mechanicum forces have shown a little bit of backbone and have kind of gotten one up, uh, Har's forces are suddenly and savagely beaten back by a counterattack from below. Uh, the forces that attack them are brazen-armored Legio-Cybernetica cohorts slumbering deep beneath the Sheol penitentiary and was a strange, hitherto unknown pattern whose almost diabolic appearance were at odds with any of the recorded Mechanicum patterns. Moving with unheard-of speed and predatory instinct, these battle automata drove back the Loyalist Astartes, killing many and forcing a retreat when all that the Loyalists had gained was soon endangered, the counterattack culminating when one of the prized Ordinatus, the Nepathax, was assaulted and destroyed in an attempt to reclaim it. Reluctantly, Har's forces withdrew, taking their surviving prizes with them and departing the planet. Their ship, the Tyrannus herself, sustaining heavy damage in her escape, barely outrunning the returning Zana fleet. The Zana incursion was over. So, uh, in Aftermath, we kind of wrap everything up here. Uh, it is possibly one of the first mentions we've seen of the Titan death engagement which I think is kind of cool. Um, and really, uh, it's basically summing up all of the things we don't know. Like, we don't know what happens with this Army of the Fallen, which was basically this huge suicidal effect on uh, the Forge world. Uh, the alliance that Zana is making with the traitors hasn't you know, been completely undone. And it's actually a possibility that the problem was made worse. Uh, the Dark Mechanicum as a whole, uh, Zana actually ends up being one of the, if not the first, uh, Hellforges in the ranks of the traitors as a whole. And uh, if you guys want to flip a little further back to uh, figure out what was going on with some of those wacky Dark Mechanicum uh, with, uh, you know, crazy brazen armor and uh, <laughs> that actually managed to, you know, drive back Har. Uh, actually, one of my favorite of the uh, Mechanicum special characters Oh, hey, Jason, let me just jump in really quick. Before hey, yeah, go for it. Crazy link. Going to wrap all this up nicely and, and sort of put a bow on it. Um, but if if we go back to the sort of the final assault on uh, on the Forge Fanes of Xana, so we've got uh, Setna, Escoriel, and um, uh, Tefna, right? And and so this is part of why I love doing uh, heresy grad school and just diving into the black books. Right. And, and sort of it's being able to look at these full color plates and then, and sort of find the Easter eggs that uh, uh, the fourth world uh, writers have left us. And so on page 78, one of, I think the most popular night houses uh, that are out there right now, uh, probably the most popular night, the, Probably the most popular trader night house um, is House Malinax. And on page 78, uh, we see a beautiful full color plate um, of a Mechanicum Knight uh, Styrix. 
Uh, I will totally butcher this, but I'll give it a shot. Uh, the Zal Kui, uh, which is pick, capture, identified in the defense of the Barbican Gate, Forge Fane Setna, Incursion of Xana. Additional ident markers in register, the Siege of Airy Mysteries, the Burkantia Purge, and the Tyrian Suppression. So, I mean, that's just like additional crazy lore that you can hang off your your night. Um, but I wanted to just point that out as, as we're talking about sort of defensive of uh, the Forge fans, I don't think Setna would have stood. Uh, Setna was the only Forge fan that sort of came out of this at all intact. Um, I don't think it would have stood without this uh, House Malinax contingent that was assigned to uh, to its protection, or at least was there on good fortune. Um, I would sort of be remiss to just uh, avoid talking. And so on page 79, we have, I won't talk about everything, but we have this really cool uh, box out of the uh, panoply of House Malinax. And um, they talk about the heraldic panoply of the reformed House Malinax. And it's, it's like a lot of nighthouses. It's taken from the sort of predatory megafauna that was common on a lot of these uh, worlds that were colonized, right, during sort of old night um, and then rediscovered during the Great Crusade. And so Malinax has this, you know, gigantic scorpion as well. But uh, but what's interested what's interesting is here this triple-tailed scorpion predates the pact with Xana and owes its origin the ancient sigil of the Malin Quatlu rendered uh, now transfigured by the Omnissiah as House Xanite sacristans have it to a purid more blessed form. So it's it's entirely possible I think that. Uh, House Malinax could have had nefarious beginnings or or dealings with sort of the the eightfold path prior to uh, its um, incorporation into the Imperium, or, or at least during the Great Crusade in, in the Night House, or the um, sorry the the Forge World of Xana. Uh, I don't think it's by accident that a scorpion has eight legs. Uh, it could just be my supposition there, but uh, I'm going to go with it. So uh, that's all for me, guys, uh, as we come to the very end here. And uh, Jason is going to take us to the the sort of uh, anti-hero of this whole story. And Jason, back to you, my friend. Hidden within the pages of history there's a lost archive of space crusades, rogue traders, and warlords from an age of darkness. Buried deep, a tomb where the weapons of these once great warriors still exist. Unearthed from the vaults of Moravec, this is Esoterica. There we go. All right. Well, uh, hey, listeners, welcome into Esoterica with Jason. We're going to be going over uh, Scoria, right? All right, guys. So this ties in uh, pretty well to some of the narrative Dave, Pat, and I were just telling you about several minutes ago. 
So, fun story here. At the very end, uh, when we were telling you about how Indrid Har's boys were starting to run into some brazen armored uh, cybernetica constructs that were a little smarter and a little fightier than the normal kind, uh, this is what they were talking about. This guy, Anakara Scoria, the Xanophane Tyrant, the Fallen Master, the Lord of the Nine Cohorts, and the Apostate Magister. So, uh, if you guys are familiar with Mechanicum, and if you're listening to us, why wouldn't you be at this point? Let's talk about some fun things about Anakara Scoria on the tabletop. So, this guy is like the best of both worlds uh, when it comes to both uh, a fighty and a cyberthurgy uh, Magos. So normally uh, the Magos Dominus from the Legio Cybernetica are the only guys that get cyberthurgy, which is great, but they're not normally very well equipped for combat you can do it but then they're trying to do too many things at once they end up being hyper expensive and they're never going to be as good at it as a tooled up reductor magos or say like a malagra magos my personal favorite so what they are great at is cyberthurgy and amping up their own little robots so uh the thing with that However, is even if you do tool them up to be combat monsters, you can't use Cyberthurgy when the Magos is in combat. You can use it on a battle automata, or any automata really, that's in combat, but the Magos himself cannot be. So, the fun thing with Scoria is he is both a capable combat character and can use Cyberthurgy. So let's go down and check out his profile here on 272. Uh, so he's got a nice uh, line of fives up until we hit wounds for four, initiative five, which is great. Uh, he's a step faster than a normal Magos, and he's on par with a Praetor. Uh, three attacks, not great. Uh, leadership 10, terrific. Two up save, come to be expected. So he's got all of the nice stats for a good tooled Majos. One extra wound, one extra initiative, one better weapon skill, one better strength. That's a big deal. Uh, if you check out under his special rules, it starts getting even better. Eternal Warrior is spectacular here. The one thing... And I know I'm talking directly into the heartstrings of every single Mechanicum player that's listening to us right now. The one thing that can ruin a combat Majos's day is that dumb Praetor slipping a single Paragon Blade instant death wound past your three up invulnerable. And you know what? Scoria don't even care. Not only does he not even care, he's going at the same initiative step as that Praetor. He gonna ruin your day. Yeah, it's... It's pretty great. Uh, he's also stubborn, just like any other Chief Magos. Uh, he's got the Cyberthurgy, got the Patra Cybernetica to sit inside a unit of monstrous creatures. Uh, he's got the Feel No Pain, which is key too, because he is a um, he is a Cybernetica Magos. The Reductor and the Magos Prime do not get Feel No Pain. Scoria does, as do other Domini. 
Uh, he's relentless, which is, you know, terrific. Uh, independent character, of course. Uh, right of the Beast and the Homunculax are both terrific things we'll get to in just a second. Uh, same thing with his Warlord trait here and the Xanathite Abeyant. Now, a couple of fun things before we go there under Wargear. Uh, the Vodian Scepter, of course, we'll talk about. Uh, Scoria has two Archaeotech pistols. Because of the Gunslinger rule, he can fire both of them. Pew, pew. And what Sorry. gets better, Scoria can fire up to four ranged weapons in his shooting phase. How does he do this? First off, two Archaeotech pistols. They count as one thing, you know, because Gunslinger rule. He also has a Machinator Array, which contains a Melta pistol and a Flamer. Uh, Machinator Array rules allows you to fire either both the Flamer and the Melta pistol, or one of those and another weapon. Two Archaeotech pistols are one weapon, so you can fire that and the Melta pistol, say. But then, if we want to flip over to the next page, the Xanathite Abeyant down at the bottom, this unique system grants him the following when equipped. Plus one wound, plus one attack, move through cover, very bulky, hardened armor, it will not die, and a photon thruster which can be fired in addition to his usual shooting attacks. Thank you. He, he's, he's a HQ tank, essentially, is what he I'm hearing. He is pretty terrific. Uh, it gives you all the bonuses of a normal abeyant, but an additional attack, and a photon thruster, which can be fired in addition to his usual shooting attacks. So all in all, you are putting out a solid little battery of pistol shots and this photon thruster once you get into range. So, it's good stuff. So Jason, before we get into the nitty-gritty of, you know, Right of the Beast, Homunculus, his his scepter... Um, is the Xanathite Abiant always worth the 40 points? I mean, you're... Honestly, I don't see how it couldn't be. I mean, like, you're getting if... a... Never mind the, the extra wound, the attacks, uh, uh, the hardened armor, um, the extra rules. Just the Photon Thruster alone is almost worth it. Yeah, in, because in my if you look at a normal Majos, a Photon Thruster is, what, 25, 30 points? 10 more points for all of those extra rules, one attack, one wound, move through cover, etc. More than worth it. And I've heard the argument is like, well, if you have to save points for like, you know, a really tight list. And the truth is there, if you're trying to shave points where 40 is going to make or break like the list, you're probably trying to cram Scoria into a game that's too small for him to be fun. Because it's never going to be fun to, you know, have him in like a thousand point game and every, you know, bolt gun and missile launcher in your opponent's army is just going to bounce off of them. That's not fun for anybody. Don't do that. So, yeah, like, I don't really see a point where in an appropriately sized game, you would not give him the abeyant because it's amazing. I mean, it's the cost of like a single phalanx. I mean, Go ahead and do it. Yeah, I was going to say, he's definitely geared, like, I wouldn't take him necessarily in, like, you can't really take him in Centurion because he's a special, or because of his character type, but, like, I wouldn't see him in, I'd, it might be fluffy to have him in ZM, but I wouldn't want him in ZM. This is definitely, like, a 2500 and up point kind of character yeah. HQ where he'll really shine by, you know, 
eating Spartans and and just popping Praetors, you know. Yeah, anything under that, I feel like you're trying to kind of cram him in and he's not going to be a whole lot of fun. But anyhow, uh, so let's talk about some of the extra things that make him terrific. So just to get it out of the way, let's talk about the Vodian Scepter first. Now, opinions on this are super mixed. It's a little frustrating uh, because it's not it's not as bad as I think it's normally made out to be before the FAQ. So just a heads up, uh, the FAQ changed it slightly to a plus two strength instead of strength asterisks and gave it armor bane. Uh, still has the entropic destroyer rule. Uh, after the FAQ, it's any unsaved wound inflicts D3 wounds automatically on the targeted model. So just like um, the Blade of Perdition for Blood Angels, uh, the other few multi-wound causing things like Strength D, it's not hits to the unit uh, or the squad or the vehicle squadron or whatever. It's wounds caused to the model. So say you get four hits, four successful wounds, you roll D3 for each one, you end up with, let's say, nine wounds altogether. That's not nine dead models. That's four models that each take whatever D3 wounds you have rolled. So on a So single... what happened... Sorry, go ahead, Jason. So it's terrific for things like... Uh, big monstrous creatures, things with multi-wounds where you can really cause problems for it. Uh, two, uh, while invulnerable saves can be taken, these wounds cannot be regenerated by any means, like feel no pain, it will not die, blessed auto-simulacra. So what were you going to say there, Pat? So in a challenge, for instance, would those wounds spill over? Uh, negative. Okay. I, ju I just wanted to cover my bases. So if... Say, let's say you got super lucky, you got three hits, uh, three unsaved wounds on a Praetor in a challenge. Uh, you roll the first one, it's two wounds, he's down to two. You roll the next one, it's also two wounds, that's a hit on the Praetor. Those wounds do not spill over. Now, that Praetor would be dead with an extra wound just kind of lost. Now, that extra hit you have caused does spill over into the squad and if you get three then that's three wounds that then the whatever squad he was attached to then have to mitigate right or does one, that go to one specific model again one specific model okay so like it would like if he was in a group say like some tactical vets with a sergeant and a praetor mm -hmm. you pop the praetor and then do you, as the player with Scoria, select where the hit goes, or does the player who's who's the owner of the squad choose where that hit goes? It's allocated randomly, just okay. like when a vehicle explodes. Gotcha. So, like, you could hit the sergeant, you could hit maybe the apothecary that was also there, or you could just hit a random dude. Yeah. Cool. So, uh, it's that's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine. I've seen people try and fudge the rules a little bit, uh, not to pick on Blood Angels players, but that's normally where I see it. With like the Blade of Perdition, you know, a chaplain or a praetor or whatever comes in, does four unsaved wounds, and it's like, oh, that's actually eight. I just wiped out most of your tactical squad. That's not how it works. 
It's one single hit that does multiple wounds to one model. Uh, same thing with strength D. Uh, if a knight comes in swinging the big giant chain saber and you get, you know, six plus D6 wounds on a tactical squad, that doesn't wipe the whole thing out. It just means one guy in there is having a really, really bad day. So uh, that aside, now that we've got that out of the way, uh, the other fun things for Scoria. So uh, first off, his warlord trait, Forbidden Protocols. Uh, if Scoria is your army's warlord, all Cybernetica Cortex models, so any Castellax, Vorax, Voltarax, what have you, uh, in the same detachment have the following special rules. They may make sweeping advance and run moves contrary to the normal rules for such units. So that means when you're outside of the Cortex range, uh, you can still make sweeping advance and run, because normally you can only do that in Cortex range. Uh, if outside Cortex control the range of a model from the same detachment, the modeler unit must move towards the nearest enemy unit other than flyers in the movement phase, must make charges and sweeping advance moves if they are able to do so. And it doesn't apply to anything with Paragon of Metal, like normal. But we'll get to that uh, in a second. Um, so this can actually cause a few problems for uh, models that you're used to leaving in the back. Uh, people are used to leaving Thanatar sitting around. Uh, people are used to having Volterax, you know, kind of doodle around the board freely. Uh, because typically they tend to ignore anything that's not airborne when it comes to um, their program behaviors. Uh, that no longer applies. So this is flatly anything with a cortex in the same detachment as Scoria, which can't, it's not going to be a huge deal, but people are used to leaving Thanatars in the back, say. And outside of this, uh, program behavior doesn't really kick in for most things when it's there are no enemy units within 12 inches. However, this is just when you're outside the Cortex controller range, period. So... Uh, it can make your Thanatar shuffle around so, you know, you only get short range on the Plasma Warder. It can make your Volterax do screwy things. Just something to keep in mind. And be honest when you're a Mechanicum player. We already catch enough flack for having rules that sound like they're made up. Be honest. Do the Cortex controller things honestly for your opponent because they're not going to memorize the rules. It's your job when you're a good opponent. And you should be. So, the next thing up the list, um, the right of the beast. This is terrific and maybe my favorite thing about Scoria. The Vodian Scepter is what everybody's scared about. This is what you should be scared of. So, the right of the beast is an additional cyberthergy power, which only he may use. The power has a modifier of negative two. That means you're going to have to roll a leadership of eight, you know, when you try and use it. Uh, if successfully applied, it affects an entire unit of models rather than just one. All models in the unit can reroll failed hits in the assault. They add plus one to their initiative, move, and charge distances for the duration of the power. However, after the power has been expended, uh, most people take that to mean when it's gone the entire turn, so from one shooting phase to your next shooting phase. I normally just go ahead and roll it like as soon as I cast the power. It feels a little more honest that way. But it's not a huge deal. Just something to keep in mind. Uh, roll a d6 for each surviving model. On a roll of one, the model suffers a wound with no save of any kind possible. So no invulnerable, no feel no pain for Arl attacks, but well worth it. Uh, 
the problem Mechanicum tend to run into. They're big, they're stompy, they hit like a truck, but mostly weapon skill 3 and 4. So when an Arlatax goes in with its Arclash and, you know, rolls Terrific Rampage, gets the charge, you got 7 attacks, now 3 of them are just gone, even against Tactical Marines, because you're hitting on a 50%. This does a terrific job of mitigating that. On top of which, never underestimate, I feel like Initiative is a really kind of unsung hero of a statistic, because never underestimate the power of going before your opponent in a combat, even if your attacks aren't as scary, because then they're fighting with a much reduced strength back at you. It's almost as great a defense as an armor save. So, uh, applying this to something like uh, Cybernetica, uh, Legio Cybernetica, this would put a Castlevax in a Cybernetica list up to initiative 5, which means not only is he re-rolling that 50%, now approximately 75% to hit against normal Marines. He's also going before them, which is spectacular. Now, the plus one inch to move is going to be a little odd because you're casting this in your shooting phase. Your robots that you're augmenting have already moved, and you're probably sending them into combat. So unless they you know, bulldoze over whatever it is and then get to your next movement phase... It's not going to make a whole lot of difference. But the plus one to charge and to initiative on top of the re-rolled hits and assault are terrific. Uh, especially nasty is when you hit something and blind it. That's basically my tactic for any sort of combat with Mechanicum is to wing a photon thruster off whatever I'm going to charge to hopefully get a blind check in there. Uh, if you both blind and right of the beast something, it is probably going to get mowed over. Now, uh, last thing we need to talk about here is the homuncle X. My favorite rule for him, by the way. Oh, right. It's pretty great. So everybody knows Arlatacks are scary. Arlatacks with the right of the beast? Even worse. However, the homuncle X is like an Arlatax on steroids. Uh, it's a single Arlatax. Uh, it may be purchased at the standard cost and able to take standard standard listed upgrades. Uh, this represents a test bed for Scoria's arts and experiments, as well as being subject to forbidden protocols. Uh, the Arlatax has Paragon of Metal and Rage at no points cost. But if Scoria is slain, the model is immediately removed from play and counts as destroyed. So a couple of things to take in here. One, uh, Paragon of Metal gives you It Will Not Die. You ignore the... Um, programmed behaviors rule and it also gives you rampage that's terrific however you can only have one single model or one single model that is an automata uh, with paragon of metal so if you take scoria and you take the homuncle x this is it you don't get the homuncle x and now another paragon of metal i have heard that argued before and I think it's a lame argument, and it feels like fudging the rules to try and get an extra Paragon of Metal in there. Don't do that. Again, be honest. Mechanicum have enough wacky rules hijinks already. You don't need more. Uh, so, the big thing here about Rampage. Arlatacks normally have Rampage because everybody I know that uses them gives them the Arclash. Arclashes are great. They give you Armor Bane, and they give you Rampage. However, a key thing people overlook 
the normal Arl attacks lightning claws make you strength 9 AP2 shred. That's terrific. The Arl attacks with the Arc Lash goes down to strength 7 AP2. Plasma Gun, not bad. The deal there is you do it for Rampage, occasionally Armor Bane, mostly Rampage, but you're now under the instant death threshold of 8 for most Marines. The Homuncle X doesn't need to use an Arc Lash, so he's got his little snippy lightning claws. He can still use those and stay at strength 9 AP2, instant death marines, but also get Rampage. Which, truth be told, I mean, one model, maybe two, when are you not going to be outnumbered to get Rampage? It's I mean, times. you're just going to be charging him into squads and just watching them melt, essentially. Yeah. Oh, one thing to keep in mind, though. So, uh, the Homuncle X does have Paragon of Metal, and Paragon of Metal, if you try and use Cyberthergy on it, think back to that Cyberthergy table from way, way long ago, Pat. You remember how if you roll a 12, something also goes awry, right? Yes. Like wacky feedback? So with Paragon of Metal, it causes a Maleficara if you fail, which is not great because then it turns into like a neutral unit and will attack whatever's closest. That can be hilarious if stuff's like in the middle of your opponent's army. Not so great if you're trying it like, you know, in the first couple of turns and you still wanted to do stuff with it. So something to keep in mind. Probably not the best idea to try to write a beast right of the beast, the homuncle X. Because one, if you fail, it's gonna go sideways. And two, he's just one model. It's better to use it on like a large squad of Castellax or Domitar or Arlatax. That's where Ride of the Beast really shines. So, Pat, I think that's about it. You got anything else you want to add? No, other than I have never taken Scoria. I know you've made your own model for Scoria. Even This was long before they released an actual model for Scoria. I made it the week Book 6 came out. And I got to be honest, I've seen your Scoria... And I think it's it's a lot better than their model. Like, I, I feel like their model looks too spindly. You know what I mean? I do. I think the best part about my Scoria is he has that creepy little spider crab thing from a call. Yes. I, uh, you know, clip that out. That's now his uh, cyber familiar, you know, with the um, sort of spider fetish that uh, the Xanites have. I really like the giant scorpion tail. When I when I read through Scoria the first time, and it was like, okay, his abeyant, you know, he's got a photon thruster, he's got two Archaeotech pistols, he's got the Vodian Scepter, he's got this wacky, you know, arthropod fetish. He's totally going to be like a giant lobster scorpion when they put his model out, right? And, of course, lo and behold, when it came out, I loved parts of that model. It's just, it's a lot. Like yeah, I think was. parts of that model, like you're saying, are definitely well done. But mm-hmm. I feel like other parts, like it, if you focus on single areas, it's perfect. But taking mm-hmm. it as a whole, it's just too much. It's a lot. I'll, I will agree. But, um, well, that's neither here nor there. Yeah. But thanks for another awesome uh, section of the Esoterica, Jason. I do my darndest.
But now you got me writing uh, Black Shield list, man. No, I love it. I love it. Uh, Will had the most beautiful Black Shield army, um, and uh, it did uh, it did leave the community. But um, it's I think it's still in one piece somewhere, right? Will? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Uh, no, it it kind of stayed in the community. Uh, somebody up in Maryland, I think, has it. Right. Yes. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I saw it uh, last year at Nova. I'm pretty sure he brought it by. Badass. Yeah. But yeah. So- but yeah, it would be it would be so cool if uh, if you wanted to do another little black shield list, man. But uh, but yeah, guys. I just I just did an inventory of all the uh, extra Iron Hand models. Well, not Iron Hand, but from that Iron Hand project that I've finished. And uh, I've got enough to do like a small centurion force of about 1500, depending how I build it. And it could be like 1500 uh, Legion of Stardes or Black Shields or whatever, man. So I may, I may do that. I may do a little small uh, centurion force. Dude, that'd be awesome. Yeah, um, I'd love to see that. And it would be a good opportunity again to do. Because it mentions that there's white scars, there's imperial fist, raven guards, salamanders, iron hands. You know, just throw in a bunch of different color schemes and try them out. Do mixed colored units and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, definitely a great hobby opportunity. Yeah, dude. Well, I, Dave, I think I think that's it. I think that that's it. I think we. I are... mean, it's not it. But I, I think I think it is is where we need to take a reprieve from Xana. So. I think so. I think we've we've definitely given uh, given our listeners the Xana treatment, and uh, and yeah, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun going over this with uh, with Will and Jesse from the main cast. Um, this has been a lot of fun, and I think this is sort of where we want to. Um, continue to go with grad school uh, is, you know, continue to bring on sort of uh, expert lecturers and and uh, and and guest professors and and uh, continue to pull that knowledge from the community. So, um, so yeah, guys, uh, thanks thanks so much for listening, and thank you uh, for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Will no, it's it's been great, man. Um, uh yeah so i guess in the plugs uh dave you got anything to plug i really don't i uh, here's here's my plug for this right as we record this on march march the 17th um and we're you know maybe two weeks into this uh you know stay at home uh sort of you know in in sort of layman's term uh keep yourself safe uh you know be nice uh be nice to everyone be kind uh to yourself uh we're so lucky to have the access that we have through uh through online and social media and uh and just to sort of be able to to feel like we're all connected uh while still being at home and uh, hopefully taking care of the people that we need to. So yeah, that's all I've got. Yeah. Um, 
like Dave said, I mean, granted that this episode's going to come out in probably a couple weeks, but still, even then, just, I mean, everybody says it and there's shirts yeah, and shit out there, but all the time, right? Keep calm and carry on. Like, there's no reason for you to gut punch somebody over toilet paper. Like, chill the fuck out. Um, but I will say uh, thank you all so much for listening. Um, and a special shout out to all our patrons. Thank you very much. Uh, and our next uh, topic was actually chosen by our, by our patrons, I think, uh, last week. And we're going into Ulanor, which is, you know, my, my preferred subject because it involves orcs. Let's be real honest here. Um, but yeah. Uh, Will, do you have anything to plug? Um, no, Forge Baker Praining on Instagram, and um, that's yeah, it. Yeah, go man. check out some of Will's shit. Like, it, it's some, some, yeah, I'm working on some ultramarines right now, doing some marble on the uh, shields and that kind of stuff, you know, just having fun doing that. Are you doing the dryer sheet method for that? Yeah, no, not the dryer sheet. I chose baby wipes because that's what uh, was cheaper. Ah, but it's the same concept. Absolutely. Yeah. Very cool, dude. Very cool. Well, Will, thank you again so much for being on and uh, hope everybody's enjoyed this episode of Heresy Grad School and we'll uh, see y'all later. Now, uh, fuck off, Craig.